Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you. On this Monday morning, and uh, I'm happy to report that we've got a great interview lined up. Uh, we're going to be talking today to Bill Johnson. He is an academic journalist and writer with uh, academic CV that would make average person blush. Uh, he's lectured at the Sorbonne and Oxford, uh, but he is from uh, South Africa and was educated in Natal. He's written several books, uh, including... Uh, one called How Will South Africa Survive, uh, which has uh, been quite famous, and a second edition of that, as well as a, a brand new book, which we're going to be talking about as well today. He talks a lot about politics and economics, which are crucial to our country at the moment. Uh, and so I'm very glad to have him on the line. Bill, welcome to the program. Thanks for being on Chai FM. Uh, it's a pleasure, Benjamin. Perhaps we could start out uh, about your time in, uh, in, in Natal and growing up with student politics. It's obviously been a big part of uh, South African discourse in the last few years. What was it like when you were there? Because I gather that that's how you got involved with some of your political writing. That's right. Well, I was on the SRC at Durban and involved in New South, which uh, it's a great loss. You know, New South was a magnificent organization which did all sorts of things apart from its political stuff. I mean, it ran a student health scheme, it did book discount schemes, it organized cheap holidays. It, did, it was a proper trade union for students. And there isn't such a thing now. And uh, anyway, it was, it was. I was active in that. And that was very much committed to the liberal side of things. So, you know... Uh, that, that had its influence. But, um, you know, certainly I got involved in anti-apartheid politics that way. Well, you were connected to uh, many of, uh, you know, ANC people, people in the trade unions. Someone who jumps to mind is people like uh, Roly Arenstein. Uh, that must have been quite a, an interesting period to be talking to people like that. Well, interesting would be a rather low-key word for it. <laughs> Look, Rowley was the most famous left-winger in Durban, <clears throat> communist and lawyer. And what had happened was that, of course, he was banned and house-arrested and all that. But I think he had the South African record for banning. He was the longest banned man. And um, there had been an attack on his house by the Ku Klux Klan, who we suspect, or we could never prove it, were security police out of ours. Uh, and that had been uh, defeated by uh, a number of ANC people who were ready and waiting in the bushes and then when, when the attack took place they rushed out and surprised them. But uh, what then happened of course was the emergency shark fill and all that. And all those people uh, were either in exile or jail or wherever. So when it happened for the second time that the Ku Klux Klan began to threaten to burn down the house, uh, I was appealed to, would I come and help stand guard? And I wasn't a 
initially very keen because I knew that any connection with Rudy Einstein was dynamite politically uh, with the police. But they had two young daughters at the time, um, Jenny and Bess, and uh, the, you know, the idea of saying no when it might mean that the house got burnt down with two young children in it um, meant that I did do that. So I spent a lot of time standing on guard outside Rowley's house, and the clan did come. Uh, there was a sort of exchange of shots, and um, it was a pretty rugged time. So I got to know Rowley. I already knew Ronnie Casrills, of course, and a number of other such people in the movement. But uh, I was thus in a rather strange position because I, I was also, I had supported the Progressive Party uh, and uh, was a liberal, really. Um, but at the same time, I had all these contacts on the left and was influenced by them as well. Well, you consider today, I would say, arguably, to be more on the right of the liberal spectrum as opposed to the left of the liberal spectrum. So, so where did things begin to change? Well, you know, I would rather dispute that. Um, I, I was in Britain for a long time. I was always a Labour voter. No voter of anything else but Labour. Um, and I, I would be some sort of social democrat in Europe. A uh, liberal-minded social democrat, if you like. Um, Centre-left. So that's really, you know, it depends which spectrum you're talking about. The trouble in South Africa is that the whole spectrum acts as so severely to the left and far left that even a party like the Democratic Party, Democratic Alliance, is seen as a right-wing party, which is ridiculous when you look at its policies. But um, So, you know, that's just South African sort of rhetoric and so forth. It's not how I define myself. I want to go back to Rowley for a second because he is the sort of guy who I think has been written out of history a little bit uh, because he wasn't specifically part of the ANC and, and their version of history has become the dominant one in South Africa. And one of the interesting things I found out about him recently was that he was opposed to the armed struggle. Uh, and that's obviously a center part of how South Africans think about the Ravonia trial and Nkonto Wasizwe. And I'd, I'm interested in your perspective of the discussions around the armed struggle at the time and people like Rowley's view on, on this, about whether it was a good idea or not? No, well, I'm very grateful to Rowley, who's a very brave man, by the way. Uh, I'm very grateful because, essentially, <clears throat> he was responsible for me not joining the armed struggle. <coughs> and I'm very grateful for that because I think it was... Look, it goes back to... After the war, when the National Party took over, people in the Communist Party naturally all said, oh, these people, they all supported the Nazis, they're fascists, this is, this is a fascist takeover, we have to fight them, etc., etc. Now, this is good rhetorical speech-making stuff, and it was also a good way to appeal to ex-servicemen who'd been fighting Hitler. And as you know, the Springbok Legion was very powerful. Uh, Rowley, after a short time, said, this is all wrong. This is a faulty analysis. 
For a start, Milan did not support the Nazis, and he cracked down on the people in the party who did. So that just isn't true. But secondly, just look at us all. And at that time, most of the people in the Southern Communist Party were whites and Jews. And he said, you know, when Hitler came to power, people like us were immediately thrown into concentration camps and imprisoned and so forth, and with no trial or anything. And uh, that's not happening here. We're all going about our business. No one's been thrown into it. There aren't any concentration camps. This is a different phenomenon. And actually, these people are very reactionary and they're racist, but they are quite legalistic. So that what happens is that when they want to do something, then they debate it through Parliament, first reading, second reading, third reading, etc., etc. They go through the whole process and they observe law. And this gives us enormous possibilities for resistance, because what he did, he, he said, look, you know, the key is black trade unions. Uh, he was always trying to help the trade unions. And uh, if you read Johnny Copeland's autobiography, he's very complimentary about really there. The, um, he said, look, you know, what would happen is that the, the government would disapprove of the union in somewhere or another, and it would find a reason for saying it was unlawful. And so he would quickly rechristen it the Bantu Working Man's Association or something like that. And since the law which said that they shouldn't exist at all, the circular or the ordinance or whatever, named them as such and such trade union, then the Bantu Working Man thing would not be covered. And it would take them six or nine months to get round to issuing an ordinance uh, saying that that was banned by which time Rowley would have changed the name again and again. And by playing those games, he said, look, because they, they play legalistically, it gives us all these possibilities of doing things. And that, he said, that the arms struggle is, is a disastrous idea and it's based on a wrong analysis. And he blamed, well, really Johannesburg section of, of the Communist Party for it. And particularly Ruth First, because he said that she, and I think Joe Slover, were following very closely events in Algeria, where the FLN had started its insurrection. Now, what happened there was that the Communist Party was strong in Algeria, and they took the line that the best way towards the future was to work with the French Communist Party, of which they were really part, uh, for a general left-wing solution in France, which would then affect Algeria. Now, they were strong, as I say, but once the FLN said, to hell with all that, we're going to fight, in no time at all, the Communist Party lost all its militants and activists to the FLN, because they were the main game in town, and they were very dramatic and so forth. And they were extremely worried that the PAC might do this to the ANC. After all, it was the PAC that had called the anti-pass campaign, and which had thus provoked Sharpville. And, you know, Sabuque was very popular, and there seemed a very real danger that a sort of radical left-wing populism of that sort 
might snatch away their constituency. And therefore, uh, Ruth First and Dean Slover argued that the real reason to launch armed struggle was that they had to outflank the PAC. It was for that, that was the fundamental reason. Of course, there was lots of rhetoric of other kinds. I think that was the fundamental reason. And Rowley said, this is a lousy reason. And if they do this, it's going to be a complete disaster because, first of all, uh, they're going to get crushed. I mean, the South African authorities have no difficulty dealing with their sabotage movements at all. And militarily, they're not going to threaten them. Secondly, uh, the government will take that opportunity to stamp down on black trade unions, on the ANC, they'll ban the ANC, they'll ban the PAC, they'll, and the whole movement will be set back by decades. And it'll be a disaster, and people will get killed, and it'll get nasty, and then the police will start using torture, and he foresaw all of that, and he said it leads nowhere. And uh, he, therefore, wouldn't have anything to do with it. And he was very strong on that front. And, of course, that meant that he became dissident from the Communist Party and so forth. But I think that that was a very correct analysis and that the armed struggle was a cul-de-sac and that it didn't help uh, in the long run. It was politically, perhaps, important to the ANC, but it didn't achieve what it set out to do at all. And um, a lot of people died and got tortured and went to jail and suffered and so forth as a result of it. Uh, so I'm very grateful to Rowley because I was a you know young radical who would have been quite available for recruitment. Ronnie Casuals later said to me how he'd really missed a trick not recruiting me. And... Um, Looking back, I, I, I'm jolly glad that I had nothing to do. Absolutely fascinating uh, piece of history there, for sure. Uh, given where where the country is at the moment, I want to ask you uh, about some of your your political work. I would argue that one of your most famous works is "How South Africa Will Survive" or "How Will South Africa Survive." How long? How long? Thank you. Uh, which you wrote in the 70s, which had a central thesis about it, uh, which you sort of revived later on. Can you explain to the listeners what that is about the South African uh, economy that you were arguing for? Oh, well, it was a complicated argument. Um, but what I was really trying to show was that South Africa is part of a world uh, international political economy and that events in that international political economy have an absolutely overwhelming effect on this country. You know, although people here are very parochial, they tend to see things entirely in their own terms. The fact of the matter was that, you know, what really killed off apartheid in the long run was pressure from the international world and cut sanctions, boycotts, and cutting off credit and so forth. And that, um, Therefore, it was essential to, to, to keep one's eye on that because this was likely to play the dominant role. And I argued that South Africa was not um, in the same situation as other colonies in the sense that there could be no easy decolonization, but that there was an implicit metropole 
which would get involved, you know, when things got to a certain crunch. Now, where I went wrong was I thought that what would happen would be an increasing temper of guerrilla action and that this would ultimately force a change by the middle 90s. This was a very bold prediction at the time because everyone was suggesting the revolution would happen immediately. And to say in 1977 that actually apartheid would last quite a lot longer was uh, not um, either a popular or a widespread conclusion. And now, my reasons for getting the date right <coughs> were based on a faulty analysis because it wasn't, in fact, uh, guerrilla action which caused that in the end. But um, I, I think that the overall point is that I, I still give much greater weight to economic and particularly the international aspects of that um, than most writers about South Africa. And when you revived your book uh, again in 2015, I mean, it was the height of the Zuma years, and essentially for me that became your thesis again, was that the South African economy was connected to the international world, and unless we we got our act together, then that was going to be what uh, uh, sort of uh, crushed the Zuma regime or, or just the ANC hegemonic regime in general. Uh, and despite the fact that you got it right in, in the early 90s, uh, the same thing happened again, that generally speaking, right up until the last minute, I think that the the book didn't really receive the attention or, or it was dismissed by its critics until – uh, this idea of a downgrade of the economy basically became so glaringly obvious to everyone. Well, the book sold quite well. Um, what it was saying is that, look, you know, we are heading towards these downgrades. It is going to happen. And that was a very shocking conclusion at the time. And I suggested that, you know, inevitably we would end up uh, needing an IMF bailout which I still believe is on the card. And um, I know it'll be resisted politically, but I suspect that we're heading that way all the same. Um, so, yeah, that book did well. Um, and, of course, uh, I don't know how you make those judgments, but I'm, I always get the feeling that the government doesn't read what I write or pay any attention to it. So they may have, or I know, but uh, they don't say so, you know. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Bill Johnson today on 101.9 High FM. Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music, and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous, and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and we're talking today to Bill Johnson, who is an academic and a journalist writing about the economy and the politics of South Africa. Uh, Bill, I want to ask you, I mean, we, we spoke before the break about uh, the, the, the threat of a downgrade and, and what it might actually uh, appear. Uh, in, in your new book, Fighting for the Dream, you've, you've actually argued that Ramaphosa should not wait and see whether – uh, there, there's going to be a downgrade, but actually should immediately go to the IMF and get it over and done with. Uh, I suspect that's going to make you even less popular, but I'm interested to hear about why you think this should be the case. Well, look, uh, it, it's pretty obvious that 
we are in a situation where I don't think we can get out of it on our own. It's a bit like AIDS, you know. Uh, we had the world's worst AIDS problem, and everyone hoped that South Africans would invent a cure for AIDS, like Floridine or whatever. Because that was all nonsense. And although all the uh, antipathy and rhetoric was against the big pharmaceutical companies, it was in their laboratories that the answer came in the form of antiretrovirus. In other words, we needed their help to get out of that mess, and that tragic mess. Now, I think we're in a somewhat similar situation now. If you look at it, our power cut started in 2007. Here we are, 12 years later, and the situation is much worse than it was. Now, you would have thought that over 12 years, you could have worked out a solution to something like that, especially since it's very urgent. But in practice, things have been allowed to get worse and worse. So uh, I think that this government has dug itself a hole in all sorts of ways, which I don't really believe they can get out of. They're not willing, it would appear, to take the sort of political steps which would be necessary to get out of it. They're too frightened of the unions, etc., etc. And we're running a budget deficit of 4 to 5%. And that means that our debt is getting worse all the time. And they haven't solved the ESCOM problem. So all I'm saying is that, look, I know people have got very antipathetic uh, views of the IMF. The IMF is a slender of law and all. And you go to it precisely when private will not lend you. We reach that point that a private bank will have nothing to do with ESCOM anymore, and uh, our credit rating is very close to the brink, as we know, as a country as well. Now, if we are going to have to, and I'm sure we are going to have to, take major structural reforms in this economy. It's going to be quite tough, you know. Uh, there'll have to be a measure of austerity. There will have to be big cuts in the civil service. There will have to be major changes in labor law and so on and so forth. Now, I think long run, this will be very beneficial. But if you've got to go through that very difficult adjustment process, which seems to me... I mean, the Argentinians have just made a deal with the IMF where they borrowed $57 billion, okay? Uh, it would seem to me that we would be, it would all be much easier for us to do those difficult things if we had an extra 50 billion US dollars. Uh, it would soothe things quite considerably, wouldn't it? So, I don't really think that there's a better solution in sight than that. Yeah, it's uh, certainly an interesting uh, observation that you make about <laughs> solutions and, and what they might be in, in, inside. In your, in your new book, you also talk about the issue of the civil service, which you, you brought up a moment ago. Uh, your, your view is that this, that the civil service in the country is, is started to act less like a service and more like a parasite. And if, if we're going to fix the country, it's actually one of the more important places that uh, we're going to have to start. Uh, could you flesh that out a bit? Well, look, it's, we know that it's far too big. We 
we know, the IMF and the World Bank and all the ratings agencies repeatedly say that the civil service is consuming far more of our uh, national resources than uh, is the case in any comparable country. We know that, on the whole, civil service jobs are paid 30 to 40% more than comparable private sector jobs. And if you read this week's financial mail, uh, you see quite calmly there the statement made that, that by the end of the Zuma period, that in effect the civil service has lost all power to implement policy, that it's been completely muted. So what's it for? Uh, you know, it's, it's there to provide middle-class incomes and consumption levels to a large number of people who are doing nothing for us, uh, or very little. And uh, this is not a tenable situation. It's a huge weight on the economy. And of course, we need to cut those numbers and the salary levels. It's completely ridiculous that we keep giving inflation plus settlements. And the last time we did it, uh, they asked the Ministry of Finance, how are we going to pay for that? And they said, we have no idea. And now, as you know, Peter Umbelani has turned around and said, well, we can't pay it. And he's told the ministries they're going to have to cut back numbers because, in fact, the pay deal is unfundable. Now, this is a ridiculous situation. I mean, if it's unfundable, why the hell did you give them pay increases like that anyway? And the same is true, of course, about pay increases at ESCOM. ESCOM has no idea how it can pay for those. Well, this is just fairyland stuff, and it's got to stop. One of the other places where you differ from the sort of conventional wisdom that's often put out there, a lot of people will, will say quite happily that uh, uh, Mandela wasn't really administrator of the economy in 94 and that, uh, you know, that he left up the work to, to Mbeki. Your view is, is that whatever Mbeki's merits, uh, he, he wasn't much of an administrator either because of the cabinet that he had to deal with. Uh, would, would you say that, that Ramaphosa fits into that same category? Well, we don't know yet, do we? We haven't seen that. But I would say that I think at the moment a lot of people are overestimating Ramaphosa. I mean, if you look at Ramaphosa's career, it's, it's not very impressive. Um he led the most unsuccessful strike in South African history when he was a trade union leader. Uh, he made a lot of money in business, but he's never been a CEO. He's never run a company. He's never produced a new product. He simply sat on boards and had my share deals. Well, that's very nice, but, um, you know, uh, there's not a record of achievement there which really people are hoping for. And I, I don't myself even really think that uh, his role as a negotiator in the Constitution was as impressive as many people seem to think. Because, you know, the clerk announces all these changes in 1919. He, he says he's strictly legalistic, he's a lawyer. Of course, there has to be an election in five years from 1989. So there's an absolute deadline of 1994. We have to have negotiated the new settlement by then so we can then have a universal suffrage election. 
Now, that makes it very easy for the other guys who have no deadline, who are perfectly willing to break off negotiations, have rolling mass action or whatever you like. Um, they haven't made any commitment of that sort. So you are now negotiating in a very, very one-sided way, where the ANC simply can dig its heels in and the clerk ultimately can't. So uh, I'm not very surprised that um, Ramaphosa's side did so well in the negotiations. I mean, I think that um, it was loaded their way from the start. Unless anybody think uh, that uh, you are only a critic of the ANC, you've had some rather choice words for uh, the DA as well in the in the last while. Uh, what's your view on, on, on what's gone wrong with the party and, uh, and, and what it has to do to fix itself? Well, basically, I'm, I'm liberal and I would say that they should have stuck to their liberal guns and that... Uh, I think they've, they've become rather lost. Um, but the fact of the matter is that... Um, well, it's difficult to know where to begin. But I think, first, look, it's no good going along with affirmative action with BEE and all these AMC policies when you know that they are doing and have done enormous damage. Uh, we all know that ESCOM is in the mess it is because you got rid of a whole lot of extremely competent people who were running it because you didn't like the color of their skin, and you then put into their place a whole lot of people who are a great deal less good uh, at their jobs. And, well, we know the result. So, you know, uh, it is ridiculous. I mean, I, I just cannot see how you end up supporting that sort of thing. But in addition to that, I go back to the early days of the Progressive Party when the slogan was merit, not race, merit, not color. And I still believe in that. I just believe that what they should have done uh, and always should do is always just pick the best people for the job, irrespective of color. It may be a black person, it may be a person or an Indian person or a white person, I don't care. Just pick the best one and do that systematically. And I think, you know, that that's what they did when they had Tony Leon, and that's what they did when they had Helen Zilla. And those people were very successful in building the party up to only 22% of the vote, starting at 1.7. They were both white. It didn't seem to matter. Uh, and they were very able. Now, I think that it was a great mistake to suddenly start saying we must have a black leader. I have nothing against Mr. Marmani at all, and I think he's very eloquent, but he's very inexperienced. And you know, politics is like any other game. You need a lot of experience uh, in order to be successful in it, and it's... Uh, you, you, you can't just jump people in. He's still only 38 now. Um, and, uh, you know, he hasn't served his apprenticeship, as it were, in the way that he ought to. And, you know, he's never been a shadow minister. He's never been a mayor. He's never... I mean, you, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. So I think that the party made a wrong turn when it 
decided on principle that the next leader must be defined by the colour of his or her skin. I think that was a, a ridiculous and wrong step. And now they're in a mess because it hasn't worked, of course. Uh, and I think what they need to do uh, is to set up something rather like the Maltino Commission, which was set up in 101.9 Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off-the-wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. We're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Talking today to journalist and academic Bill Johnson about his thoughts on politics and the economy and everything in between. Well, I want to move on to foreign policy, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, we've we've uh, focused a lot on uh, the local economics and, and politics. And I'm particularly been fascinated by your view on how South Africa should be operating on, on the continent. You know, we, there's lots of rhetoric going on at the moment about us having an Afro uh, currency for the whole continent, a sort of European Union, African Union style agreement. Uh, your view is that that's not uh, the best way to go. Uh, what would you be alternative if you were made a foreign minister sort of from an African perspective in the current administration? Well, I think the critical thing is to realize two things. First of all, that Africa is our main market, and we are in the happy position that what we ought to be doing is we ought to be growing an enormous amount more food and selling it to Africa, uh, and doing everything to increase our agricultural output. Uh, Introduce commercial agriculture into the Trump sky and everywhere else, and uh, do all you can to do that because we're competitive and we can see that checkers pick and pay and they're very good when they set up in the neighboring countries they do well, they're popular and we should be doing that across the board so I think our main 
a push should be of that sort. I think that it would be ridiculous to have an African currency. And actually, I think that the agreement, the free trade agreement and the African Union agreement that Kramovers has already signed is an absurdity because it talks about the free movement of labor, just like the EU. Now, the free movement of labor, as you know, has got the EU into all sorts of knots, and it would certainly do that to us. I've just been doing opinion survey work, and, you know, it doesn't matter which party you're in, but 80% plus of everybody says there are too many foreigners in the country. And they put a lot of the blame for unemployment on that. Now, that may not be fair, but the point is that we are in, you know, if we have open borders and we say there should be free movement of labor, then we're going to get an avalanche of labor from the rest of Africa, which will be unskilled labor, not the sort we need. And it will end up with xenophobic riots. And it's just completely crazy to encourage that. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's irresponsible. And I, I, I don't know what he was thinking about when he signed up for that. An African currency is equally silly idea. Uh, there are many, many countries in Africa whose currency is effectively worthless. And uh, if you joined up with that lot, then you would just be in terrible trouble. And uh, I think that, yeah, you need your head red to do it, actually. And the second point I would make is that, look, for our investment, we still rely a great deal on European countries and America, the Western world, if you like, increasingly also China, of course. But um, those are the important countries for us. And it has to be realized that we are still terribly dependent on them. And, for example, you know, the AGOA agreement with America, if the Americans turned around, they could, at a moment's notice, say, well, you don't qualify under that anymore, and it would kill our car industry. Now, you know... (laughs) I, I would suggest that means that uh, our foreign policy should be a lot more sensitive to the United States and its views and its issues uh, than we are. We, we are one of the most anti-American countries in the world, and we really can't afford to be. Um, so on, you know, I mean, uh, one could go on. But I think in general, the, 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 the foreign policy is still far too much like um, a sort of student union left wing sitting down saying what would be like on principle in an ideal world given the sort of people we are. And that's not the way you make foreign policy for a proper state. I mean, given that perspective that you have of the Americans uh, and and their view you know, in terms of our economy and things like a goer, uh, surely that would also then, by implication, extend to how South Africa looks at the the South African-Israeli relationship because there's one thing Trump has been consistent about is uh, his views on Israel, and uh, we don't really seem to be improving that uh, at all. No, well, look, I think you should pay attention to the fact that the Bundestag has just passed a motion uh, saying that BDS is effectively a 
very badly. And it's very noticeable that, you know, we're all in favor of BRICS. But the Chinese, the Russians, the Indians, they're all happy to trade and invest with Israel. They certainly don't go along with that. Yeah, it certainly is uh, quite interesting. A, a lot of people feeling a bit despondent uh, at the moment, um, not sure what to do with, with where the country is going, uh, often are looking for, for ways to make things better. If you were talking to the ordinary citizen, um, people who are involved, what would you say would be your number one piece of advice for people, uh, first of all, for themselves personally, but also you know, to, to try and get the country a bit better? I didn't get that. Uh, first of all, for themselves personally, uh, you know, there's, there's always talk about immigration and what should people be doing, etc. Uh, so personally, but also more civically involved, what would you recommend for people to do? Well, look, uh, let's be sensible about this, Benji. I don't think that our national problems are capable of individual personal solution. That uh, what any person, me or you, does is going to make not a great deal of difference. So um, I don't think that it's sensible to ask people say, you know, how they are going to solve our national problems, because they're not. Uh, all I can say is, personally, um, I could live in England if I wanted to. I have a British passport as well as a South African one. I choose to live where I do. I like it here. And I have no intention currently of, of changing that. Um, it's an interesting question what would make me change and I think the only thing which would force me to, to change that would be if they brought in NHI and abolished uh, the current medical the private medical system because uh, I think a very large number of professional middle class people depend upon that and yeah, I'm now in my 70s I wouldn't survive very long if I had to depend purely on the public sector hospitals. That's just the truth. So that would probably force me out of the country, and it would force lots of doctors and lots of professionals as well. So it could be a disastrous move. Um, the, but otherwise, what can I say? We, we have to enjoy this lovely country. Uh, we have to carry on working if we're lucky enough to have jobs uh, and do the best we can in terms of treating everyone as well as we can. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very strongly um, an egalitarian when it comes to race relations and so forth. And by the way, uh, you earlier on said that uh, I'm seen as right-wing or something, which I find amazing. It's, it's worth pointing out that my sister married a black man, that one of my brothers married a black woman, that my son has married a black woman, that a lot of my family are of mixed race or black. And that has always been the situation Please, I'm sorry, the phone's going and spoiling things here. No um, problem. The, um, I, see, you know, I said you were I, on, I, more, I more on the right with, of the liberal spectrum. I didn't say you were right, right, right wing. And I'm very happy with that. And, uh, you know, it would be 
I think it would be very strange for members of my family to hear that anyone regards me as racist. No, so so certainly uh, we didn't say that. I, I said in terms of the South African political spectrum, you're more on the right of the liberal spectrum, certainly not right-wing at all. That's not a, uh, a position I would take. Um, I, I, now that you've finished your, your book uh, at the moment and uh, you, uh, you know, you've been doing it on tour and, and to different places, uh, do you have any other projects in the work? What, what is occupying your time at the moment? Yes, I do. I've almost finished another book, actually, uh, and I intend to keep on writing. I have various projects, but in, I don't like talking about books until I've written them. Uh, I find that the two things don't go well together. But it's, it's important to... I, I've made that mistake before now. Um, you get very keen on an idea and you want to, to, to write about it and explore it and so forth. If you go off and talk to everyone about it, you lose the freshness, you lose the zeal, the passion that you need, and it all becomes second-hand to you and it's a mistake. So I'm not going to talk about future projects except to say that I, I will carry on working for as long as I possibly can. And if people want to read your stuff, uh, your books, uh, I know you write regular columns, where, where can they find the work that you are doing? I do not write regular columns. I have no column in any South African newspaper. Uh, I never have had. Um, in fact, that's a question which is really rather nice to ask as to why it is that uh, I've never been asked to write a regular column, but uh, I haven't. And, I mean... I've had regular columns in all sorts of international newspapers, but never here. Um, the, uh, sorry, I lost my thread. I was, I was asking really where people can find what you've written, column or, or, or anything else. <laughs> well, I mean, I write sometimes on public web. I have a website of my own. I'm right down with updating it. But mainly these days, it's my books. Um, and uh, I write for some international things still. I write for Standpoint in London, for example, quite often. I've got an article coming out there next month. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, I'm no longer writing at all journalistically for any newspaper, except occasional articles when I'm asked to contribute them. I mean, the report asked me to do a big article on the uh, election. Uh, no English-speaking paper did, by the way. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, I think you're wrong to, to see me as a sort of person in demand as a columnist, because I'm not. Well, and unfortunately, I have so many other questions, but we'll have to leave it there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show uh, today. Okay, that's fine. And uh, please best. keep up the good work. Bill Johnson there uh, on 101.9 KFM. Certainly worth uh, reading his uh, work and uh, engaging some of the ideas. They are very, very interesting. Uh, we're going to take a short break, uh, and when we'll come back, uh, wrapping up the show. You're back with 101.9 KFM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Pretty much brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Vusi who helped us with the sound, to Mandy who does the production. 
and to Craig pushes all the big red buttons. And uh, thank you to you, dear listeners, for listening in. Always happy to take any of your thoughts. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, Benji underscore Shulman. Uh, tweet us uh, at Chai FM. And uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. <laughs>